On the morning of April 24, 2013, around 5,000 people, mostly women, filed into the Rana Plaza garment factory in Bangladesh. As soon as they arrived, they began toiling at a breakneck pace to assemble garments for stores like Mango, Primark, Gucci, and even the children's place. The day seemed like any other, but there might have been more tension in the air. The day before, alarmed workers had pointed out cracks that had appeared in the walls. Other establishments in the plaza had immediately evacuated until the building could be fortified. But the garment workers were forced to return. There were obvious signs that the eight-story building wasn't structurally sound. Allegedly, an engineer had even warned the building's owner, Sohel Rana, that the building wasn't safe. Rana, however, dismissed all of these concerns. His razor-thin profit margins wouldn't allow for even the slightest delay in production, so his workers were commanded to keep going. But the system had been pushed to its breaking point. Something had to give. Just before 9 a.m. local time, the structure collapsed. 1,134 workers were killed, and roughly 2,500 were seriously injured in what became the worst garment factory disaster in history. In the days that followed, devastated workers and family members looked for where to lay blame. Certainly some of it fell at the feet of the building owner. But ultimately, he was just one cog in the supply chain, one that leads up through brands, retailers, and most importantly, the consumers who support them. People a lot like you and me. This is The Dark Side Of, a Spotify original from Parcast, a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This season, we're digging into fashion, from its troubled origins all the way through where we stand today. Fast fashion. In this episode, we'll unravel the threads of some of the industry's trendiest brands to get an understanding of their startlingly high cost. And we'll take a hard look at fast fashion's supply chain, from the designers who dream it up, to the factories that churn it out, and to the consumers who flock to buy these wares day after day. We can all appreciate a good deal, which is a huge part of fast fashion's appeal. But when we score our cheap tags, it's ultimately the environment and laborers in developing countries who pay the price. Coming up, we'll examine the darkness that may be lurking in your closet. First things first, what is fast fashion exactly? Pretty on the nose, actually. It's fashion that goes from the catwalk to the sail rack at lightning speed. 
Merriam-Webster defines it as an approach to the design, creation, and marketing of clothing fashions that emphasizes making fashion trends quickly and cheaply available to consumers. Think fast food, but make it fashion. This rapid pace is a fairly recent development in fashion. Until just a few decades ago, the industry operated at a much slower speed. There were four fashion seasons, spring, summer, fall, and winter. And retailers came up with four different collections to match. Designers planned their offerings months in advance, trying to figure out what customers would prefer when the next season rolled around. When brands accurately predicted trends, the system worked. But when they didn't, they could lose their shirts trying to hawk the clothing that didn't sell out. Big bucks were on the line, or even the threat of shutting down completely. To avoid swing and miss trends, retailers gradually started to shorten the amount of time between design and release. Months were condensed to weeks. Retailer Zara has famously collapsed its timeline from a piece's design to display in stores to just 15 days. Producing clothing more quickly also meant brands can switch things up throughout the season, thus giving customers a reason to come back and part with their hard-earned cash. Understandably, this faster method took off with retailers as a means of protecting the all-important bottom line. This new streamlined timeline boomed. Elizabeth Klein, author of Overdressed, The Shockingly High Cost of Cheap Fashion, pegs the beginning of the craze to the early aughts. By that point, Zara had upped the ante in the industry. It had shifted to twice-weekly deliveries of new merchandise. The goal was that every single garment they produced would hit the trend bullseye. And ever since, it's been a race to the bottom for which brands can design and produce clothes the fastest and for the least amount of money. The market has been crowded by dozens of entrants you might recognize. Boohoo, Uniqlo, Primark, Topshop, Misguided, ASOS, H&M, Forever 21, Nasty Gal, and Fashion Nova. While they all vary slightly in aesthetic, price point, and target market, these retailers have the same goal. Reel in fashion-conscious customers, usually millennials or members of Gen Z, with absurdly low prices. We're talking $5 to $25 per item, sometimes less. As Klein and other concerned authors have pointed out, though, the trend of producing garments as quickly and cheaply as humanly possible has swung past its sweet spot. Retailers like Zara and Fashion Nova launch hundreds of new styles every single week. At that kind of scale and speed, you can bet the quality isn't the number one priority. Sadly, craftsmanship is barely a consideration. Keeping such unreasonable schedules means cutting every possible corner. Sourcing the cheapest materials goes hand-in-hand hand with subcontracting out to factories that can offer the lowest possible price to produce a garment. But hey, anything to save a buck. It's easy to see the appeal of fast fashion. It gives customers the feeling that they can walk into a store like Fashion Nova or H&M and buy just about anything off the rack. 
Trends are always within reach and ready for display on one's Instagram, all without breaking the bank. There's even scientific research supporting the idea that people are hooked on fast fashion. In 2007, researchers from Carnegie Mellon, MIT, and Stanford used MRI technology to see just what goes down in the brain when it spots a hot buy. Their findings make sense on some level. When people were shown a craveable piece of clothing, their pleasure center in the nucleus ambens lit up like a Christmas tree. For reference, this is the same part of the brain that's involved in drug addiction. But the research subjects also had to take some pain with their gain. The insula, a part of the brain that processes pain, kicked into gear once they were later presented with a moderate or high price. Ouch. What will calm the insula down, though, is a deal. Then the pleasure center takes over, thrilled to snag the bargain. You get to buy the clothes and feel good about saving some money. Win-win. Fast fashion retailers have built a fortune on this complex. Maximize the pleasure and minimize the pain of shopping. Their stores lure us in with ludicrously low prices appealing to our pleasure centers. Jeans for just 20 bucks? A dress for $15? A shirt for five bucks? It almost seems foolish not to take advantage of these deals. What consumers aren't often considering in those moments though, is if the purchase will make it past a few washes. But then again, many shoppers don't need more than a wear or two. Once a cute picture is posted to social media, it's on to the next outfit. Rinse and repeat. This cycle plays right into the hands of fast fashion brands. In their volume game, the sole objective is to sell as much cheap clothing as possible. At such low prices, though, fast fashion stores generally only make a few dollars on each sale. So they make the real windfalls by keeping customers coming back and opening their wallets week after week. And that business model has legs. Clothing sales raked in a staggering $1.8 trillion in 2015. By 2025, that estimate may jump to $2.1 trillion. And those numbers have made a select number of people very, very rich. Stefan Persson is Sweden's richest person. Though his 36% stake in H&M may seem tame, that's enough to make his net worth $17.4 billion as of 2020. Which, of course, pales in comparison to Amancio Ortega, co-founder of Zara, who is the sixth richest man in the world. His net worth clocks in at a cool $65.7 billion. Not bad for hawking $20 tops. The only way to make this kind of cash is to move product. A lot of it. In reality, the sheer scale of their businesses often make it hard to grasp just how much clothing fast fashion retailers actually produce. To get a general idea, though, Greenpeace estimates that the entire fashion industry produces about 80 billion garments each year. Zara alone makes an estimated 840 million garments every year to stock its more than 2,200 stores worldwide. 
Zara joins other industry power players like H&M and Fashion Nova. With their massive buying power, these retailers have the ability to make or break the factories where they outsource their production. But these factories, much like the one in Rana Plaza, are subsequently forced to cut every possible corner in order to turn a meager profit. We've already seen the kind of tragedy this can create. When retailers dictate impossibly low prices, factories are incentivized to prioritize productivity over humanity. There is no time to consider future consequences. But this can also lead to more subtle repercussions, like pollution as factories spew chemicals into the atmosphere and the water cycle. And the effects of these harmful practices are already catching up to us. Coming up, fast fashion taxes the environment and human health around the world. Listeners, I have a surprising treat for you. You know you can find love in a bar or on an app. Why not a podcast? In Blind Dating, the new Spotify original from Parcast, we are expanding the places you can meet your match with a twist you'll never see coming. Every Wednesday, YouTuber and host Tara Michelle introduces one hopeful single to two strangers in a voice-only call. Through a series of illuminating games and questions, the trio finds all the sweetness and awkwardness of a first date minus the distraction of appearances. But once our hopeful single chooses their match, the cameras are turned on and it's either butterflies or goodbye. Blind Dating airs weekly with new episodes every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. For decades now, the fast fashion retailers we know and love have been cashing in on their offerings, cheap garments that are produced as quickly as possible. Customers then reap the benefits of style on a budget. But working so fast and on such an expansive scale papers over the grim reality beneath. Factories are a breeding ground for unethical business practices. As you can imagine, waste can be an issue. When a garment is only as good as how fast it can make its way to a rack, mistakes are made along the way. In some cases, they can be salvaged. But in others, the product is simply mangled beyond salvation. It would seem cost-effective, then, that retailers might find a way to recycle or somehow reuse the material. Alas, this has not proven to be the inclination. In 2017, Greenpeace discovered that H&M was burning brand new clothing in Denmark. They specified that these were items that couldn't be sold due to production errors or health issues, like mold or labels contaminated with lead. And it wasn't just a couple items here or there. Literal tons of clothing were being incinerated, about 12 tons per year between 2013 and 2017 alone. After being pressed about its practices, H&M finally made a statement that only added insult to injury. It admitted that Denmark wasn't an isolated incident. The retailer had been burning rejected clothing in locations all around the world. 
On top of the initial waste element, there's also the environmental toll to consider. To incinerate clothing releases 2,988 pounds of carbon dioxide per megawatt hour. That's significantly more pollution than is caused by burning natural gas or even coal. Which makes it difficult to stomach the last piece of the puzzle. In 2010, H&M was also found to be dumping bags of perfectly good, unworn clothing in the streets of New York. During the winter, gloves, coats, and shoes that could have kept people warm were intentionally destroyed. The pieces were either shredded or punched through with giant holes. It seems that H&M was only interested in seeing its clothing out and about in the world after the retailer had turned a profit from it. It was still more lucrative to ruin its product than to put it on people's backs for free. So clothes that are never sold can face a grim, if not depressing, life cycle. But there's still a virtual ocean of clothing that does find its way off store racks and into our closets. What happens then? By all accounts, a closet is probably just a brief stopover before the piece's final destination, a landfill. According to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, more than half of the fast fashion clothing produced annually is thrown out in under a year. The report goes on to cite that the United States has one of the fastest disposal rates in the entire world. Some items are discarded after just seven to 10 wears. The Saturday Evening Post estimated that in 2017, the average American dumped 82 pounds of clothing. That would add up to a total of 11 million pounds of textile waste from the United States alone. At this point, it's fair to consider that not everyone throws unwanted clothing in the trash. What about donating clothes to Goodwill or the Salvation Army? It's surely an option, but in practice, it largely fails. Fast fashion garments aren't designed to maintain rewear value. For this reason, only about 10% of the clothes donated are actually sold in local thrift stores. Which means the buck is passed, essentially. If secondhand stores can't sell an item after a few weeks, they often bundle it up and ship it out to developing countries in India, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Latin America. Unfortunately, Western countries have been offloading unwanted clothing this way for decades. But as these countries are now growing their own middle classes, the market for cast-off clothing has contracted. Given the choice, people in developing countries have more desire and ability to buy new clothes of their own. There's less appeal for shoddily made Western clothes. Alan Wheeler, director of the UK's Textile Recycling Association, put it this way. If clothing quality continues to fall, demand from the international market drops even further. We might have a second-hand clothing crisis. And then there wouldn't be any place at all to take your cheap old clothes. A sobering thought for sure, which some industries have considered as a small portion of excess clothing is currently reprocessed each year into yarn or cheap insulation. But the bulk of it often ends up in a landfill. 
Metric tons of cheap clothing rotting away in a trash heap is a frightening image. But still, there might be something worse. Tons and tons of cheap clothing not rotting away. Consider this stat from the New York Times. More than 60% of fabric fibers are now synthetics, derived from fossil fuels. So if and when our clothing ends up in a landfill, it will not decay. Most of the fabrics used in fast fashion garments are synthetics, like polyester and elastane. While these Franken fabrics come at fantastic price points, they're also not biodegradable, which is a death knell of sorts for the environment. It only makes the deal all the more sour that these materials might be laced with lead, pesticides, and other chemicals from the manufacturing process. So, while it's not the knee-jerk reaction to picture a cute romper from Fashion Nova hanging out in a landfill, it might help to consider its future, one of slowly releasing chemicals into the environment for hundreds of years. Maybe it's not so cute all of a sudden. And it's important to remember that what we're seeing is just a snapshot of the environmental damage. Consumers largely enter the equation at the end of clothing's life cycle, which makes it all the more critical to remind ourselves of the chemicals and emissions involved in making this schlock in the first place. It comes as no surprise that the fast fashion industry has a massive carbon footprint. Just the production of polyester fabrics accounts for 706 million tons of greenhouse gas produced each year which is a portion that helps the fashion industry in total to produce about 10% of the world's harmful emissions. That might seem like a small figure, but that's enough to make fashion the second most polluting industry on Earth. The only worse culprit is oil. Fashion is also number two when it comes to polluting clean water around the world. On that front, Agriculture is the only sector with a worse track record. If these practices are allowed to continue unchecked, the results could be disastrous in a matter of decades. The Ellen MacArthur Foundation estimates that by 2050, the fashion industry could consume a whopping 26% of the world's carbon budget. For clarification, the carbon budget is the maximum amount we can emit into the atmosphere without the temperature increasing more than 2 degrees Celsius. Most experts agree that to go beyond this would culminate in imminent ecological catastrophe. So, no pressure. Naturally, the heavyweights of fast fashion like Zara, H&M, and Fashion Nova don't want consumers thinking too hard about the catastrophic environmental impacts of their products. They employ an out-of-sight, out-of-mind strategy. For this reason, outsourcing to factories in far-off places like India, China, Bangladesh, and Cambodia has become rampant. The effort is largely one made by brands to divorce themselves from the responsibility of their practices and what they do to the environment. Take China, for example, the world's largest producer of textiles. Greenpeace estimates that two-thirds of the country's fresh water is contaminated with dangerous chemicals, like heavy metals and toxic dyes, byproducts of the textile industry. 
And once these hazardous substances are in the water table, it's almost impossible to get them out. That means the tainted water is used for drinking, bathing, and growing food. An entire population then faces an impossible choice. The risk of allergic reactions, skin irritation, and even cancer, or to go without water. India, too, has seen its natural resources ravaged to feed the fast fashion beast. The Ganges River remains dangerously polluted, in no small part due to the effects of clothing manufacturing. This is especially tragic because the river provides drinking water to over 400 million people and is considered a holy site by one billion Hindus around the world. And the devastation simply continues from there. The city of Kanpur, India's leather export capital, has faced similar environmental peril. Every single day, more than 50 million liters of toxic wastewater pour out of the city's tanneries. Chemicals like chromium-6, which is used to treat leather, flow freely into local water sources used for farming and drinking. After mixing with the water grid, it's only a matter of time before the toxic substances are ingested. For reference, chromium-6 is the chemical that Julia Roberts was mad as hell about in the movie Erin Brockovich. She had good reason to be livid. When it's ingested, it can cause skin discoloration, rashes, boils, numbness in limbs, stomach ailments, and even cancer. Even natural clothing fibers like cotton can have devastating impacts when they're heavily treated with pesticides. Take Punjab, India, where a large portion of the cotton used to make the world's garments is grown. There, pesticides are used liberally to protect the crop yield, leaving the local community to pay the price. According to the fashion documentary The True Cost, these pesticides have been correlated with increased rates of birth defects, mental illness, and disabilities, as well as a slew of various cancers. And the chemicals from manufacturing, like pesticides and even lead, can still be present as residue in clothes at the time of purchase. Some evidence goes so far as to suggest that when certain chemicals come into contact with our skin, they can be absorbed into the body. One more harrowing reminder to consider the next time a pair of $20 skinny jeans or a $15 little black dress hits the sale section. But if all of these startling realities aren't enough to make us rethink our shopping habits, it's worth boiling down the madness to where it all begins. The simpler the better, right? When we focus on how fast fashion takes advantage of people at the bottom of the supply chain, the ones who put the clothes together in the first place, the burden of being on trend becomes undeniably clear. Coming up, the appalling, hazardous conditions for garment factory workers around the world and the future of fast fashion. Now, back to the story. As we've discussed, fast fashion's production of cheap, trendy clothing has taken a huge toll on both the environment and on global health. But of all the tragic exploitation involved in churning out second-rate clothes, 
The worst of it falls on the shoulders of the workers. Garment workers, the people who spend hours meticulously stitching the clothing together, keep the whole system running. The nonprofit organization My Sister's Closet estimates that there are 40 million garment workers in the world, 80% of whom are women. The vast majority report in each day without rights, protections, or the prospect of a living wage. The U.S. Labor Department has long known of the fashion industry's misdeeds and struggled to keep tabs as they expand across the world. In 2018, the department released a report laying out evidence of forced labor in no less than nine countries. Bangladesh, China, India, Indonesia, Philippines, Brazil, Vietnam, Argentina, and Turkey. If you need a clearer visual, try going through your closet and examine the made-in tags. You might be hard-pressed to find clothing that wasn't made in one of those countries. We've touched on some of the horrifically unsafe working conditions garment workers face, like the tragedy of the Rana Plaza factory collapse, but the iceberg only plunges deeper. Rana wasn't the only atrocity in fashion that year, let alone the only one in Bangladesh. According to the New York Times, more than 500 Bangladeshi garment workers died in factory fires just between 2006 and 2012. It's unacceptable for one human to be brutally killed in the name of cheap clothes, let alone hundreds in one country. But for garment workers, the alternative to the risky choice is often dire. Either earn less than a living wage or no wage at all. Again, Bangladesh serves as a horrifying example. In 2018, Vox reported that sewing machine operators there regularly work more than 100 hours in a week. And even with that inhumane amount of labor, they can't afford to support themselves. The same article went on to state that workers in Sri Lanka make about $197 per month, while they need about $481 per month, more than twice their monthly income, in order to support their families. Given these appallingly low wages, perhaps it's not surprising that protests have broken out around the world demanding fair wages. It's only natural that desperate garment workers would use whatever means necessary to try to improve their pay and working conditions. But their demonstrations have often been met not with sympathy, but with violence. One instance of protesting in Cambodia was met with brute force from police who fired munitions into the group of demonstrators. After two days of violence in the streets of the city of Phnom Penh, five workers were killed. More than 40 were injured. This was all because workers had dared to demand a paltry minimum wage of $160 per month. And in Bangladesh in 2013, more than 50 workers were injured in clashes with the police after thousands protested against low wages. Their demand? They wanted to be paid $100 per month. In reality, garment workers abroad can face circumstances that ultimately prevent safer work environments. Unionizing, which often begets labor laws, isn't common and for several very legitimate reasons. 
One problem is that garment factory workers in developing countries are often without alternatives for work. The factory owners who endorse their meager paychecks are well aware of this fact. Because factory owners know that employment is coveted, they take advantage of the situation and treat their employees however they see fit. For those workers who do come together petitioning for better working conditions, they can be verbally or even physically attacked. The True Cost documentary features a harrowing testimonial from Shima Akhtar, a young Bangladeshi garment worker. She described being locked in a factory with dozens of other employees. They were viciously beaten for daring to ask for higher pay. Despite this brutal treatment, though, many still returned to work. They didn't have anywhere else to go. Unfortunately, government regulation provides little promise for improvement either. Workers in developing countries don't often seek federal protections. Though it's less evident than in other circumstances, they know the retailer's bottom line is still top of mind. Countries like Cambodia, Vietnam, Sri Lanka, and Argentina are eager to pull in business from multinational corporations like Zara and H&M. While the huge labels turn a handsome profit, the same isn't guaranteed for the developing countries. Factories in different parts of the world end up undercutting each other, trying to offer the absolute lowest cost of production to entice major retailers. With massive orders for tens of thousands of garments, a contract with a major fast fashion retailer can be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. That gross profit can keep a factory in business for years, and by extension, it can serve to prop up the economies of developing countries. Should any country try to push back, the big corporations simply flex their leverage. They can always threaten to take their business to another factory in another country at any moment. In light of this, developing countries are discouraged from raising their minimum wage even though it would ultimately benefit their workers. It might mean handing the advantage to their neighbor. As many governments around the world keep their minimum wages nauseatingly low, the cycle continues. Brands benefit from the low labor cost without shouldering the responsibility of the conditions workers face. Retailers receive their product shipments as if ignorant of the toil used to fill them. But don't go thinking it's just developing countries where workers are taken advantage of. Similar exploitation happens much closer to home. The U.S. is no exception, even in the sunny, progressive city of angels, Los Angeles. Fast fashion engine Forever 21 found itself in hot water with the U.S. Department of Labor right in its own backyard. In 2017, the LA Times found that over the previous decade, almost 300 individual claims had been filed by its factory workers. They were demanding pay they had never received. Collectively, these unpaid wages amounted to hundreds of thousands of dollars. And while it's a rare spot of good news that these workers did eventually receive their payments due, Forever 21 itself didn't have to pay a penny. That's right. The brand escaped paying its literal dues. 
by a loophole specifically contracting their manufacturing to independent factories, Forever 21 claimed it never directly employed these factory workers. On paper, California law was on their side, which left the smaller companies holding the bag. Forever 21 wasn't the first retailer to use a technicality to escape being reprimanded, and it certainly won't be the last. Take its competitor Fashion Nova, one of the biggest names in fast fashion, which has also run afoul of labor laws. At the end of 2019, the New York Times reported that dozens of U.S. factories making Fashion Nova garments were under investigation. Allegedly, the brand owed hundreds of workers a total of $3.8 million in back wages. The article cites that some factories were paying some employees as little as $2.77 per hour. In Los Angeles, a major city where the minimum wage is $13, almost six times that amount. In classic skirt-the-blame fashion, the massive retailer attempted to distance itself from the whole situation. Its general counsel, Erica Myron, said, Any suggestion that Fashion Nova is responsible for underpaying anyone working on our brand is categorically false. Basically, this was lawyer speak for not our problem. But the buck has to stop somewhere. As the power holders, big brands have to answer to some higher authority. David Weil, former head of the Wage and Hour Division of the U.S. Labor Department, put it succinctly. He told the L.A. Times, This whole problem devolves from the retailer. They force the production costs to as low as they want because of their power in the supply chain, with the result of ultimately the workers bearing the whole cost and risk of the system. While keeping the status quo to protect their bottom line has largely been top of mind for today's retailers, certain factors are changing. Though subtle, they might force brands to reconsider the way they do business, willingly or otherwise. Analysts last year found some data to support that fast fashion might be losing its death grip on the clothing market. A 2019 report from consulting firm McKinsey pointed to an increase in rental and secondhand clothing. We can largely credit Generation Z for this shift. The whippersnappers born between 1997 and 2002 are starting to come of age and flex their buying power. Despite the pressing need to keep their TikTok and Instagram stories fresh, some Gen Zers are shunning labels like Fashion Nova and Forever 21. Instead, they're embracing alternatives like Rent the Runway and the online consignment store ThreadUp. According to Business Insider, Gen Z is leading a movement away from fast fashion because they are more environmentally conscious than their predecessors. That green thinking might have something to do with watching the planet fall apart right in front of their eyes. Gen Z is also one of the first groups to be faced with the most relentless reminders of climate change. Gen Z holds potential to focus its weight behind a bigger push for slow fashion, which again is exactly what it sounds like. The phrase coined by Kate Fletcher of the Center for Sustainable Fashion refers to fast fashion's polar opposite. 
This way of shopping emphasizes producing high-quality clothing under sustainable practices and purchasing fewer items that last longer. The philosophy seems like a common-sense and desperately needed antidote to the vagaries of fast fashion. But it remains to be seen if the movement can really take off on a universal scale. While growing slow fashion may have been a top priority in early 2020, one critical development in recent months must be considered when looking to the future. Much like any industry these days, COVID-19 has had staggering effects on fashion. In the early months of the pandemic, H&M and Zara's parent company, Inditex, promised to contribute its massive production outfits to churning out PPE. It seemed for a moment that the fast fashion gods would use their powers for good. But then the other shoe dropped. Workers at the bottom of the supply chain were soon called upon to make good on the retailer's generosity. More than 500 Inditex factory workers in Myanmar, the very individuals being tasked to produce masks to protect people around the world, made some simple requests. Just two, in fact. Social distancing measures in the factories and masks for themselves to wear as they worked. You can likely guess what response they were given. A resounding no on both counts. And to boot, the workers were laid off for their allegedly audacious requests. Among COVID-19's many disastrous effects, the pandemic has also given consumers time to stop and think about the way we do just that. Consume. Individually, internationally, and collectively, as a whole species. The long story short is that there's much room for improvement. A small but hopeful possibility is that the pandemic's upheaval is turning the mirror back on us and our relationship with clothing. When we're not constantly in motion, it's far more difficult to avoid the impact that our choices have on the planet and the billions of people living on it. It's easy to shuffle and cast blame equally on megacorporations like Inditex, H&M, Forever 21, Zara, and Fashion Nova. But at the end of the day, these are businesses doing business. They have never shied away from the fact that their goal is to make as much money as possible. Which returns us to where we as consumers factor into the equation. Money can't be made without money being paid. Collectively, both the fashion-hungry and the fashion-frugal have the power to take responsibility in this moment. So perhaps the next time you're eager for the inescapable thrill that comes with buying something new, just wait. Sit a moment longer with the true cost of that cheap, trendy treat. Thanks for listening. For more information on the fast fashion industry, amongst the many sources we used, we found the True Cost documentary extremely helpful to our research. Next week, we'll be back with this season's finale, The Dark Side of Fashion Week. New York Fashion Week has long been the biannual nucleus for the American industry's hottest new trends. 
But as each iteration balloons in scope, cost, and burden, many have been left to wonder, is Fashion Week obsolete? You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Spotify originals like The Dark Side Of for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Nani Okwalagu, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Remember to follow Blind Dating for a dash of romance and rejection. YouTuber Tara Michelle hosts, and she's thrilled to help hopeful singles meet their match once they've survived the hot seat. Follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.